Hello, and welcome to the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast. My name is Holly Samuel, and I am a registered dietitian and certified personal trainer. And my goal with this podcast is to empower you with nutrition and exercise knowledge from various health and wellness experts and everyday runners to become the best, strongest, fastest, fit cookie version of yourself that you can be. Are you ready? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode where we will be talking to UK endurance athlete, motivational speaker, author, and world record holder, Nick Butter. If you guys have not heard of Nick Butter before, what are you even doing? (laughs) There are honestly so many stories, and I had so many questions to ask him, and just we barely grazed the surface, um, essentially, of all those questions that I wanted to ask him about his endeavors, because Nick Butter, essentially, he is the first person ever to run a marathon in every single country in the world. And not only did he complete this, but he did it in two years. <laughs> it's 196 marathons and 196 countries in 674 days. And he did it with the goal of raising money for prostate cancer awareness. So to give you guys a little bit of background on Nick's story, which we will obviously dive more into with him later in this episode, he essentially grew up, um, you know, running essentially, but didn't always do these crazy ultra endurance events. And essentially one event that he did in the Sahara desert, he met this person named Kevin who told him that he was dying of prostate cancer. And Nick was so touched by Kevin's awesome mindset and positive outlook on life, despite having a terminal illness where he was given two years to live that Nick basically dedicated this world record attempt and successful, um, not to spoil it for you, but he was successful, um, to raise money for prostate cancer awareness in Kevin's honor. And I'm not going to spoil the ending for you on how that ended, but it has a pretty happy ending. Um, So just to drop some statistics on this amazing endeavor, Okay. Are you ready for this? Like, sit down. I'm just going to read these off of his website because we didn't talk about each of these (laughs) in the episode because there wasn't time, but they deserve a shout out. So again, Nick ran 196 marathons in 196 countries. And he ran basically more than that, to be honest, because if you think about running 26.2 miles, you always end up running a little bit more than that just to make sure the record counts. And if you add up you know, a 10th of a mile over the course of 196 times, you have quite more than 196 marathons, but I digress because he took 10 million steps running. He drank 1200 liters of water while running. He flew 755,000 miles by plane in both 344 bigger planes and 111 tinier planes. He ran 22 of his marathons with food poisoning He ran 101 of his marathons, so more than half of them, without food, with no fuel, which we'll talk about. 
He ran with nine different presidents, 41 different British ambassadors. His carbon uh, offset footprint for this trip was, was zero. So he basically offset his carbon footprint and was pretty environmentally aware um, of all of his endeavors because Nick didn't just have all these big sponsors like driving him everywhere around the world. He, he pieced this together with the help of his team and essentially did a lot of this on his own dollar and was definitely, it definitely wasn't a charmed experience for him. He was definitely roughing it in a lot of these instances, as you can imagine, because visiting every country in the world can be very tricky on its own. When you add running marathons, it gets even trickier. He ran with over 5,000 different people. He did runs anywhere ranging from negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit to 138 degrees Fahrenheit. So imagine packing for something like that. And all he had was, you know, what he could carry. Um, He basically did 60 paid bribes for access to different countries, as you can imagine. (laughs) He took over 400,000 photos. He made 2,411 new contacts in his phone because of this trip, which is super cool. He um, took 50 buses. He took 19, I'm sorry, 18 trains. And he also was mugged and attacked twice. He did 22 marathons with food poisoning. Um, He did two marathons with a kidney infection. (laughs) And also... He was bitten and attacked by a car, um, bitten and attacked by a car. He was bitten and attacked by a dog and also hit by a car. He took over 500 nutritional supplements. He reports that he had 150 bad food days, one horrendous tooth infection, slept in over 489 different beds, did 88 school visits, 199 hotels, 59 host families, five camping sites, 29 campfires, burnt about 690,000 calories, saw 92 different animals, flew in and out of 599 different airports. He was in contact with 40 different languages, and he's run over 800 marathons to date because this isn't the only epic thing that he's done. So again, I really highly encourage you to check out Nick's website and his Instagram page, which he'll mention at the end, just to learn more about his story and follow along with all the cool adventures he goes on. And also you can go by his book to learn more about this particular adventure, which is called Running the World. And it's pretty epic. So I highly encourage you to do that. So I'm going to stop ranting about all these cool statistics and let's get chatting with Nick Butter. Hello, Nick, and welcome to the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast today. I am a huge fan, and it's such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Holly. I'm really looking uh, looking forward to having a proper chat and uh, all things adventure and running. So yeah, let me, yeah, let me, yeah, any questions you need, I can ask them. Cool. Well, I feel like the world record holder for a marathon in every country does not need an introduction. I feel like people should know who you are, and if they don't, I want to shout it from the rooftops, but... Um, can you tell everyone um, who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Yeah, so my name is Nick Butter. Um, I like running, I suppose, is the uh, the understatement. Um, I am the first person to run a marathon in every country in the world. Um, from the UK, but now with my girlfriend and my little puppy, we live in a van, and so we don't really have any fixed address. Um, we've not actually been in the UK for 
six months now. Um, we're in we're in the mountains in the Alps in France at the moment, avoiding the uh, the COVID lockdown. So yeah, from the UK, very much British, but um, all over the world, I suppose. Yeah, you've you've traveled a bit, I would say. <laughs> just just a little, and um, and also too, I I think it's worth mentioning, like you know, this isn't something you just like you know, you were born and then you started living in a van and have been running ever since. Like you had like a career in finance, like tell us more about your background and kind of how, how you've gotten to where you are today, where you've, you've run in every country in the world and more. Yeah, I think the, I suppose the slightly more philosophical answer to that is that in order for me to get to this point where I've traveled around the world, ran in every country, I've what, what no, 45,000 miles under my belt, 828 ma marathons. Um, I'm in order to get to that point, I think it's probably thanks to a handful of in, really influential people that have helped me kind of mold and, uh, and transform myself, really. Um, I was a very shy, dyslexic, I'm, I'm talking like abnormally shy uh, as, a, as a really, really like young boy. Um, wouldn't play with any kids in the playground, was kind of like fearful of enjoyment, I think, and fearful <laughs> of the world. Um, I guess I started to learn that sport was a good outlet and, and I was naturally good at sport, I think. Um, and I guess I put more effort in the more I realised I was better at it. Um, it certainly overtook my academia uh, in school. I was definitely definitely focusing on sport and then I went into skiing um, I was in the under 19 uh, snow sports England ski team um, which was amazing and I set my heart on on becoming an Olympian and skiing was going to be my life um, but I then had the voice of my parents on my shoulders who were saying to me actually Nick you should probably get a real job because after a while being a ski bum is just not going to work because your knees are going to fail and it doesn't earn you any money and you want a mortgage and a family and the life and I thought yeah that's probably quite true um, and so I had you know, really lovely teachers who kind of helped me come out of my shell and then a really great coach in skiing um, and then my parents said this and then that's when I, I kind of went down the more academic route and uh, I went into finance, went into banking, of all things. Um, and so that was a way to earn some money, but it wasn't a passion. And as I kind of my bank balance increased, my soul was slowly degrading, I think, without me really realizing it. Um, and running was a great kind of alternative to skiing in the sense that skiing, you need skis and snow and mountains and in the UK you don't get a lot of that um, and so yeah <laughs> and so running was with a cheaper slightly easier option um, I did skiing and, and, and badminton and tennis and I just love sport generally um, but running was always the core because I think everybody uses it for fitness um, and so I, I improved my running a little bit um, I then got to the point where I was running races and marathons and ultras and during my career I had some really good bosses who fortunately allowed me to have a little bit of time to myself, uh, much more time than they probably should have given me and I was, I was then able to go and spend a bit more time training, um, I was always in the gym, always just literally getting as many miles as I could and that's when I then started to enter proper races and some sponsors would get a hold of me. Um, and I then kind of transitioned from work to try and make running a career. But it was not easy because 
you, you have to say goodbye to the money and you have to say goodbye to the stability and goodbye to everything that I knew that was going to make you know what my parents would assume is like a normal life and becoming a runner is certainly not a, a career really and I can say that from now being a runner it's more just you have fun and you get by um, and so then I went and raced in the the Marathon de Saab um, many of your listeners will know big seven day grueling race out in the Sahara Desert in Morocco 50 degree heat there's about a thousand runners every year I've um, been going for about 30 years or so now and I was in a tent with seven other people and the eight of us would kind of get to know each other and one of those people was a guy called Kevin he was 49 50 at the time and he basically just said a few words to me that that was just a, the shift over the edge I needed to kind of say goodbye to proper life and and go out on a bit more of an adventurous whim and, and Kevin was very tragically diagnosed with with terminal prostate cancer um and i'd never really chatted to anybody as an adult in detail that was dying and was potentially only going to live for two years and it was quite profound and what with the desert being quite harsh as well it made our conversation so much more powerful and he said to me don't wait for a diagnosis you know many things he said one of the things that stuck out and i will forever remember and i think about virtually every day now don't wait for a diagnosis. And of course, what he was trying to tell me is that if you just kind of fumble from one day to the next without any intent and without kind of following your dreams, then one day it's going to be your last day. And I think it's safe to say that we all, including me, go to bed at night believing that we're going to wake up the next day. Um, and unfortunately, like life just doesn't happen like that. Um, and so he really did kind of give me that kick I needed. And then I wanted to do something to raise some money for, for Prostate Cancer UK, the charity. Um, and then I had to work out what I wanted to do that was a bit bigger and long enough and would capture the media's attention in order to raise some money. Um, and then I stumbled upon the fact that nobody had run a marathon in, in, in every country in the world. I just Googled it thinking, well, many people would have done that because we, you know, we've put people on the moon. We've, <laughs> we've done some pretty special things as a civilization. Um, and I thought, well, we must be going to every country. Um, and amazingly, nobody had done it. And I was kind of half expecting people to come out of the woodwork and go, I've done it, I've done it, but nobody has. And so few, I've learned that fewer people have been to every country than had summited Everest. And I'm like, wow, that's quite, that's, that's crazy. Um, so yeah, so fewer people had, had been to every country. And so I set my heart, my heart on that. And then it took me two years to plan it. And then I went for it and by some incredible miracle we managed to get to the finish line and the rest is history and I'm now yeah running a lot I suppose <laughs> you haven't quite quit the sport yet I appreciate um I appreciate how you took us from like yes I I I ran almost as a means of like commuting it was kind of like a sport that I could get into I was in finance and then you you told us how exactly because I always tell runners like you go from like not running one day to all of a sudden you literally were in the middle of the Sahara Desert <laughs> running yeah. an ultra marathon you know over the course of several days and it's like I appreciate you just telling us how you got from point A <laughs> to yeah. Sahara Desert and then all of a sudden every country and um, I I love you know you know what you said about meeting Kevin you know and kind of how he almost kind of shook some of that life into you to get up and go do the things you want to do and not to wait for a diagnosis when I when I always hear about you you know telling that story whether it's on other podcasts um you know or in your in your Instagram posts that are super detailed and awesome 
you know, I kind of think the same thing. I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to interview Nick Butter today. I'm like going after what I want to do, which is so cool. So you're recycling uh, that that vibe here, which is awesome. Uh, that's so kind of you to say. I think I think so many people have a um, have an opportunity to remember that every person they meet or every new person they kind of stumble across, or so many people out there that are doing amazing stuff, they could be the one person that kind of gives them the swerve ball message like Kev gave me. I didn't know I was gonna, I just thought I was gonna go out to the desert to have a race and come home again. Um, but it just didn't happen like that. And I think it's quite it's quite profound when you think of it that way. That it's just one little conversation. You don't really know subconsciously if you're right on the edge of that cliff of adventure or whether you still need a few more pushes to get there or whether it's you know whether you want to follow a completely different you could be singing it could be pottery it could be poetry whatever it may be it's just that final little push and i'm just you know i'm grateful for kevin for all of the people that kind of led me to that point from from being shy and kind of almost reclusive really to then absolutely the opposite it's been quite a quite a journey yeah, I think I think my journey's probably been similar, just on a lesser lesser level. I haven't quite traveled the world, but I, you know, I I too was kind of more shy. And then jumping into entrepreneurship as a dietitian, you can't really be shy. So, you know, yeah. kind of it's like sink or swim. And it's it's just good to hear that um, you know, you've you've just gained so much from from doing good things too, you know, in your own life, but also in raising so much money for prostate cancer. And and how is Kevin doing? It's all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased that that's the case. And I am going to fear the day where so, so many people ask me that. And I fear the day when I'm going to have to say he's not OK. Um, obviously, he is still dying of cancer. Um, but the drugs and he calls it drug roulette. Um, he's basically just taking the drugs and one day, you know, they won't work anymore um, and there won't be any more drugs to go to. He kind of says that, you know, you go through a cycle of drugs and then when they stop, stop working or start wearing off then you find another drug um, and then you find another drug and then one day there will be no more drugs that can help but um, I'm just I'm just very grateful that not only did I meet him but he was able to give me that little bit of knowledge and now we're able to have a chat on the conversation you know, on the phone after this trip because I didn't even expect him to be alive by the time I left let alone he actually ran with me for the final marathon of my journey and so it was just remarkable and he's just still doing lots of running adventures now he's one of the, the best runners I know um and yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't know looking at him that he was kind of a, a condemned man really um he is just the most remarkably bubbly happy i just wish everybody in the world could meet somebody like that because it will certainly kind of give you a bit of a kick of when you're moaning about stuff you go oh, actually yeah could be worse absolutely yeah and i i i'm happy that i get i got to have a happy answer that he's currently doing well but i i understand what you mean i i have a couple people in my life like that who are just playing like the drug roulette when it comes to breast cancer or other forms yeah. of disease and it's it's just you know it could be like a, a terrible waiting game or like you said you can kind of grab the bull by the horns and try to try to be happy every day which i mean if you're running marathons he's doing he's doing pretty good so that's pretty he's, cool yeah he's doing pretty good i guess the only i mean yeah. god forbid if i'm ever in that position but i from everybody that i've seen and so many people are affected by cancer not just the people that are diagnosed with it but the family and extended people that, that are known by them um it's just kind of you have one choice it's just attitude that's you know if if you either you either absolutely fight it and you go for it and you can take everything on or you just kind of give up um, and I think that varies from person to person, from cancer to cancer, to age to age. And fortunately, Kev was in the, the former and he, yeah, he's, uh, he's a great bloke. Cool. Well, that's really cool. And yeah, we kind of spoiled the ending of your story if people weren't familiar <laughs> with it. But yeah, I mean, I know, I know that you, um, 
you know, you have a lot of stories and you have a whole book about it, which I'm, I'm done with my master's now, so I can like read for fun again. So I, it's <laughs> here and I just, I'm excited to get started with it now that I can do that on my, all the free time that I have. But um, yeah, I mean, you have a book about all of the stories from this collective journey. So, you know, kind of part of what I wanted to get into today, because I, I want to hear more about those stories in your journey, but also as, from a dietitian's perspective, First of all, I have so many questions, but we're not going to have time for all of them today. But the some of the nutrition questions I have, you know, just you kind of going and doing like three marathons a week in several different countries on average for, you know, like two years, um, you know, countries where maybe there is food readily available and the water is safe to drink and then countries where that's not the case. And there's, of course, other factors. Um, it's kind of like a nutrition miracle, you know, that you, you made it out pretty unscathed, which is really cool. So, I mean, in terms of like just preparing yourself to do this, because like you said, the, the career of running, you get to run, but there's like a lot of other stuff that goes into the planning mm -hmm. process. Can you tell us a little bit about like, if that was just part of what you were trying to plan around and, and get into that a little bit? Yeah, the nutrition, um, you know, the nutrition planning, we had a, had a performance manager who was working with me from the very beginning. Um, and this is something I've learned, and actually I'm still learning, that I, I think I actually have quite a good knowledge of what I should and shouldn't be eating and what it does to the body. And that's mostly out of kind of trial and error, mostly error. Um, and, and just kind of understanding what the body's doing, because I'm experiencing probably what you've learned I'm experiencing it in my body in extreme forms and so I'm like oh yeah you can't just eat Mars bar after Mars bar because this happens or you can't just have 20 gels because this happens or if you don't sleep this happens and so I've kind of got you know loads of different boxes that I've kind of ticked in in terms of that but nutrition was very hard to plan um because A, let's say you go, right, well, this is all the nutrition we need. So let's take some dehydrated food. Let's take some supplements. Let's take some uh, energy gels, some sachets, whatever, you know, whatever's out there. And then you realize that it's two years and I've only got a backpack. And you think, right, well, that's that out of the window. I can't put all of that in my bag. So that stops. And then you think, right, OK, so maybe I just always eat two meals on the planes. Um, and that was actually something that we stuck with fairly often. It was whatever, whenever I have an option, opportunity to eat, eat, um, even if it doesn't look very nice or isn't tasting very nice or maybe isn't very healthy, just eat. Um, and then later on in the journey, there's a lot to say about nutrition, actually. Later on in the journey, I had to then make a decision quite often. I would say for at least 80% of the last six months of the journey, I was actively making the decision in the evenings to have either food or sleep. And I was going, right, do I leave the hotel or leave the hostel or leave the, 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 you know, the host's house and find food or do I go to sleep? And so many times, I think I can't remember the numbers now, but there's over 100 days where I ran marathons and didn't eat while I was running. And I think there's about 35 days in the whole trip where I didn't eat at all. Um, you might have the numbers in front of me. I, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of days where I didn't eat anything, um, and especially the. I suppose the most extreme experience I had for nutrition. I mean, other than I suppose I should probably say I did have 
there was 30 odd bouts of, of food poisoning, 22 marathons with food poisoning. Um, that was kind of to be expected, really. Um, I kind of knew that was going to happen. But the most extreme nutritional or the, the dietary issues I had was weight loss. And that was in the first couple of weeks of Africa, um, where I was a bit picky. I didn't eat where I should have done. I was knackered frankly i was just wanting to go to sleep and, and i was sacrificing meal days um and i lost um i think it was about 10 or 11 kilos in the first two weeks of the africa leg um so i mean you can ask me more specific questions about nutrition but i i'm not very good with nutrition i should probably point that out even if even if i had all the options if i had like, literally platters in front of me I, you said right go to the bits you should eat I knew I know exactly which I should and I could pretty much tell you like the the effect it will have on your body or the the percent I'm, I kind of feel like I know that but I can tell you now nine times out of ten that's not the option I'm going to pick to eat <laughs> um, and that is mostly because of this weird psychological thing and you you must know more about it than I do where for example recently running through Italy or even on running the world um I knew I had conversations with people like yourselves who were talking to me about nutrition and I knew what I needed to do, but I just didn't want to eat it. You know, I just didn't want to go through and have that stodgy meal of porridge in the morning. I'll just have a bit of Nutella or I'll have a Mars bar or I'll have a Twix or, I'll have, you know, just something because you're, you're running so much that you just want a little bit of enjoyment through your taste buds when your body is suffering. So there's huge amounts that I, I need to learn and the stuff that I want to do in the future if I continue doing what I'm doing now, which is basically not respecting nutrition enough, I won't be able to do the bigger challenges. Um, and I'm very aware of that. Um, I, I just need, I need to find the balance, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. Cause like, I mean, even from, you know, if you talk to like nutritionists or dietitians to help you plan for this, I mean, you can plan and I can tell you what's recommended like all day. Right. But it's like implementing it. That's going to be the hardest part, like hands down, because one, you know, your plants could just, you know, be blown away because something doesn't go as planned. Or like you said, you're just so revolted by the idea of eating something that it's, you're not yeah. going to eat it. Or, you know, you're, you're much more apt to want to catch up on sleep or not leave like the safe place <laughs> that you're in yeah. to travel outside and get food that also might make you sick. So, um, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's super impressive. I mean, I, I, I do have some of the stats, like you did 101 marathons with no food um, which is like more than half of them. Um, yeah. and then, you know, we did 35 days without food at all. So I love the strategy of, um, you know, trying to eat on airplanes where, you know, the food's probably not that great, but maybe it's at least kind of safe or it's being offered at least. Um, yeah. and I don't have to move to get it, which is yeah. a genuine, genuine consideration. <laughs> else for you to do, I guess, while you're on the plane, but, um, at least you don't need Wi-Fi to eat, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think some of that's super interesting. Like, did you, um, in terms of, I know you battled a lot of food poisoning, like you said, um, and a lot of different climates. Like, how did the climates affect your hydration status and some of, like, what were some of the challenges with that? Because I have here that your hottest marathon was around like 59 degrees Celsius, which is um, 138 Fahrenheit, you know, for those of you in the US. And then I've got the coldest one was negative 25 C or negative 13 Fahrenheit. So like, what were the challenges with that? How did how did that go? And how do you feel? Yeah, so the, uh, the weather thing, I can tell you, 
uh, from being in every country in the world, the world is very hot. <laughs> Mostly it's very, very hot. Um, and I was really finding water. Uh, I love drinking water, actually. Luckily, I naturally like to drink water. I always have my little bottle with me, arms, arms reach. Um, but some days I would, I would drink about eight litres, not exaggerating, eight litres during my marathon. And I would finish and I would go for a pee and it would still be fluorescent or I wouldn't need to pee at all. Mm. And that was extreme. And that wasn't that wasn't 60 degrees C. That was like 40 degrees C mm. because you've got the humidity, you've got altitude, you've got kind of perceived exertion as well. So maybe I'm drinking less or more. Um, and and then when you go to a slightly colder climate, even if it's only 10 degrees colder, that my water intake was so much less or I was drinking the same and I was flushing out nutrients and that was making me sick so it was so difficult to be on top of um the I think I, if I had to choose between hydration and nutrition with you know, out of those two, I don't know if those are the right words but what, what water and food whether they were the biggest problems I think I think water I think water finding water at the right times because bearing in mind these marathons you don't just have um like aid stations all the time most of the time i was running independent routes either with people or without people and lots of people were very um have different views on whether you should drink the water or not so classic example in barbados they have standpipes all over the island and the water is completely drinkable that's how it's advertised um and runners and joggers and walkers will just drink from the standpipes and all the runners that came to help me that day were like oh no you don't need to take water um and our team had said to them in advance nick always needs water please buy some bottled water because blah 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 and they, they didn't bother doing that because the water they believed was fine um and so at that point you can't say no we've got to go to a shop everything's got to change we can't do this we've got to find a car to drive after us in order to get the water you just go okay accept it unfortunately as that example water was fine and it was actually really handy but in plenty of other places that wasn't the case um and either water wasn't as often or um it was just very dirty um and i was actively knowing like well do i drink this and then just get ill or do i not drink it and get really dehydrated and have kidney problems and faint and and you just have to make those decisions. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of problem with, with hydration. Hydration was a really top issue um, because when I'm running away from somewhere, there was an actually, um, I can't remember where it was now. I want to say, uh, no, I'm not going to remember it. Somewhere in Africa. Um, and I went, one of those 54 countries, um, and I, I I was in a country where they had a real big financial currency crisis, they didn't have any money, um, couldn't use my cards, um, it was all completely up the spout, not working whatsoever, and they didn't have any shops open that were selling anything that I could use my currency to pay with, and so there was no way of doing it. And so there was a couple of times in a number of countries, this one particular, where I had to ask shop owners, um, in a random third world country for water for free because I was going on a jolly around the world and I was at the time I was like oh please you know, we're doing this it's, re it's really important and looking back it wasn't important them having the water was probably much more important than me having the water but I was really aware that you can't I can't just carry on doing a marathon without any water and in fact in 40 degree heat in Iran, um, when I was running, uh, running in Iran, at something like two o'clock in the morning, crazy humid, 40 degrees, 35, 40 degrees. Um, and this guy was driving with me and he said, look, we need, 
we'll go and get water later. We'll get water like, en route. And I said, okay, as long as it's soon, because I am thirsty and it's hot and I'm running a marathon. Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, around the corner, around the corner. And I ran 24 miles without a single drop of water in 40 degrees. Um, and that did cause a kidney infection and kidney problems. And I was peeing blood and all sorts of stuff. It was horrible. But that's a classic example of just going, right, well, okay, trust you, carry on. Um, and it could have really kind of derailed the whole mission. But that's why I say many miracles happened to get me to the finish. Well, yeah, and that kind of scenario too, it's kind of the, I talk about this with my nutrition clients all the time. It's like, let's make, you know, the best possible decision in a pretty crappy situation. Like <laughs> what else were you supposed to do? Right? Like there was no water, you don't know where you are and you're kind of trusting this person to be your, your guide. Um, and with the kidney infection and how did, I mean, how did you handle that? Did you have to take, like, did you have to pause? Did you have to like seek medical attention? Like, how did that look? Cause you were in Iran when that happened. I was in Iran. Yeah. And then not only was that happening naturally through the nature of the trip, I was obviously getting on a plane every other day. So even if, right. even if it was required that I needed to go to hospital, the option was always not to go to hospital because I would then be stuck and I'd miss a flight and then I'd miss my next connecting flight to the next place and so on and so on. And so sticking to schedule was so important. And so we tried to avoid any of that. So I, I, I spoke to doctors at home. My brother works as a medic as well. And so I spoke to him and spoke to various people and they said, yeah, it's not good, but just keep an eye on yourself and keep drinking. And, and unfortunately there was, it happened a few times that I had that and it was horrible. I can't tell you how having that kind of kidney pain and just knowing that you're really doing your body some damage um psychologically as well isn't good um and so yeah that was that made everything a little bit harder but um it was just a case of keeping on keeping on and yeah that was the name of the game really yeah i think that's a good theme too because i think oftentimes like dietitians or people who are trying to work out their nutrition to improve their performance we're talking about like okay let's set ourselves up to have the best possible day, like on marathon day and run the fastest possible time and have the greatest time and then kind of leave pretty unscathed, feeling pretty good. And like for something like this, what I find so fascinating is that, you know, that's not really the goal. Like your goal is to get a marathon done, you know, in all of these countries in a certain time frame, and be healthy enough to do it. And I think like that term healthy enough is where, you know, our definitions may be different across the board. I think ultra runners tend to be super gritty um you know yeah. and and can get a lot of things done just out there um on your own without water without food and you know some other people may have a harder time just getting through that mentally like you said knowing like what kind of damage you're doing um like how like because you've done you know you, and i want to talk about the italy challenge too because i also assume doing this out of a van is also challenging um, you know, how, like, how is your mindset and how does that like help you just get to the next, the next task and keep moving forward? Yeah. Should I talk about Italy a bit? Cause that's, that's a really good, that's a good example. Um, yeah. Italy. So uh, for everybody listening, Italy was, uh, recently, um, I was supposed to be running north to south of Malawi last year and then COVID hit and Malawi closed its borders. Um, and so we moved Malawi to later this year. Uh, and instead, Italy was open and the pandemic seemed to be OK at that point. Um, it was after kind of lockdown one <laughs> um, and and uh, and being stuck indoors. And so Italy was open and we thought, right, well, I've always wanted to run north to south of Italy. Why don't we do that? And so we set ourselves a goal north to south of Italy um, in 100 days and to zigzag through the country as opposed to just go straight down. because That's a bit boring. So we wanted to do 100 marathons in 100 days, um, which was pretty cool. 
started off as a bit of a jolly and have a good fun and Nikki, my girlfriend and, and Poppy the dog in the living in the van driving through Italy kind of had this romantic notion about it um, and it was for, for a while in northern Italy with the hills and the Dolomites and gorgeous mountains and then as it kind of progressed we got tired we slowed down and the pandemic was also kind of closing in around us um, and we we're having to be really careful of regions and stuff so the situation I think my nutrition in Italy was worse than on running the world because <laughs> there were so few places open. I can't tell you how empty the whole country was. Um, everybody was indoors, nothing was open, and we were just living off anything and everything we could get our hands on. And like, it was easy to make. Bearing in mind living in a van, we have an oven and a hob. You don't want to be making like beautiful dishes every day when you run a marathon. You just want to eat and go to sleep. Um, and so pizzas, pizzas were big on my agenda which I actually think is and I had a lot of pizzas in on running the world as well because they were a staple like good carbs let's have some chicken or some tuna or something on a bit of protein maybe um and then maybe some vegetables if I'm lucky which didn't really happen um and and then some supplements and so that was basically my diet and I'm not exaggerating that was all, all we had and yes I did have some nutritional drinks and I often take quite a lot of supplements we can talk about supplements if you like um supplements just for for daily bits and pieces on running the world I was taking uh, 11 tablets a day before we left for the challenge I remember sitting down with my mum bless her and I said mum I need all of these boxes of tablets um, in tiny little bags <laughs> I'm going away for 674 days I'm going to need to take these 11 tablets every day for 674 days <laughs> and so we went and put all these little tablets in the pouches and um and so I knew what I was having and we had things like cod liver oil we had some probiotics to help my gut kind of cope with stuff um, yeah. uh, extra iron um, we had magnesium potassium we had um, uh, green tea extract general multivitamin um, cod liver oil omega-3 can't remember all of them there was just a whole concoction of stuff I was kind of rattling at the end of it but um, it, it did seem to work and I think they did help um, not entirely sure because it's never you know it's never really a fair test there's no other equivalent but um and i don't know if i mean i ask you what if you think that's a good idea or not but um it seemed psychologically to be to, to be better i think it certainly helped my joints that's certainly i think that definitely helped but yeah. we'll just have, you'll have to do it again and then not take the supplements this time and then we can compare in a in a control trial <laughs> I, think it, I think in i think in this day and age it might take me a little bit longer <laughs> to yeah, get from country to country <laughs> yeah that would probably take a good a good decade to do by the time you're allowed to go into each country again oh my goodness thank goodness you were able to do that before before everything happened with the with the pandemic yeah, very lucky, actually. Um, very, very lucky. And pretty much as I was crossing the finish line, that incident in, in China that sparked it all was pretty much happening as I was crossing the finish line, actually. It was just remarkable how so close we came. But um, I feel very sorry for lots of other adventurers that I know, friends of mine or people who have got in contact and have asked advice for trips and they've spent a long time planning them and then they've started and had to stop. So I feel very lucky that, um, yeah, that that's, I've been able to get that done. Yeah, I think I, I listened to one of your podcasts on, I think it was on Rich Roll, and he was talking about when, you know, the beginning of the year happened and you had just finished, I think, um, was when Kobe O'Brien passed away, tragically. Yeah. And you, he was talking about that as like the main news headline. And while, yes, give value to that, it's very sad. I was like, oh, I don't think 
I don't think the pandemic had started yet because they would have been talking about this by now had that been the case, which is no. just perspective. It's it was hard enough that it would be even impossible now. As I remember I remember seeing seeing the news that it was starting to be a problem. Um when I got back from the US after seeing Rich and running with Dean and stuff. And yeah, that was God, it seems like an absolute lifetime ago that, that <laughs> Cody died gosh yeah wow yeah it's it's crazy and I think um you know to get back to the supplements too I mean yeah I mean I would argue like 11 of them a day like you know kind of covering your bases it probably at least because there were days where you didn't need anything it probably at least gave you some sort of level of normalcy where your body was like okay we're getting like electrolytes from somewhere you know, we're getting, you know, probiotics from somewhere. I can't, you know, I, I can't imagine what your gut health looked like with going through food poisoning and kidney infections and different food and, and all of that. Um, you know, and I like, you know, like I tell everybody, it's not like supplements are, are magic pills or the end all be all, but I'm sure it helped. I mean, it definitely didn't seem to have hurt. <laughs> um, no, yeah. I, I do think, I do think they did help. Um, but and certainly a few weeks when I was either low on them or I was having to kind of like do every other day or maybe I definitely did feel something then. But again, I don't know how much of it was placebo. And um, but regardless, <laughs> I'll it take helps. that. <laughs> yeah. If it's placebo, at least it's not hurting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's still helping. Um, and if you had to pick two, like you said, you ate a lot of pizza. Where where had the best pizza or the most memorable, at least pizza? In the world? Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> not Italy. Um, not Italy. I'm going to say, ah, no, I can tell you that Honduras, I think, was my favorite pizza meal um, because a very bizarre thing is in the book, I think. I had a huge pizza. I was staying in this lovely Honduran family's home, didn't speak any English, um, and they took me out for a meal. And we had pizza and it was a great cracking pizza. I think I had anchovies or it was just lovely. Um, and then as I, everything was kind of being cleared away, they started singing happy birthday and they delivered me another huge, equally massive pizza, but it was a sweet pizza. It was full of like honey and syrup. And oh. No, not ooh, amazing. No. It was yeah, the I was say, that sounds no, it, it sounds really good. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was it was unbelievable. I mean, it wasn't my birthday, but I took it. Um, and that was the, I think that was one of the best pizzas I've ever had. A sweet pizza. If anybody makes their own pizzas, try sweet pizza because that is uh, that is great. Not good for diabetes though. Hmm, it's um, fine. It's fine. Well, and what I was going to say, how did they know it was your birthday, but it just wasn't your birthday? No, they just got it completely wrong. It wasn't my birthday at all. I think, I actually think that they they told the kitchen in the restaurant it was my birthday in order to get a free pizza, um, which I think is quite clever. Yeah. Yeah. And you were like, well, thank you, because I need to like eat this while I have the opportunity because I may not eat again for a week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there was every meal I had, actually. That's a very good point. My attitude of eating was... I'm going to be very antisocial for about 20 minutes and I'm going to scoff my face with food and then we can have a conversation <laughs> because I was like just coming out of, I don't know, a, a war of some kind. I was just so hungry all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm like a monster when I'm hungry after a run. So I can't imagine that like amplified times a thousand every single day. Yeah, exactly. Um, how like when you come home from these challenges and I know, you know, you were, you were probably home for a little while with the pandemic and everything. And then you started your, your Italy journey. Um, like does, do your eating habits like change? Do you find it difficult to like understand that food will be available at all or, or do you adjust <laughs> to that pretty quickly? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, 
I uh, yeah good okay so if we're talking about coming home I uh, during running the world I again as bad as this sounds but I'm not really apologizing for it because it was kind of a saving grace as I ate as many McDonald's as I could possibly eat on running the world so mm -hmm. much so that when I came back to the UK I decided I wasn't going to eat McDonald's for an entire year because I'd had so much. It was that bad. Even though I'd lost, like my body fat was like 3% or something ridiculous. I was like, no McDonald's because they're just bad for you. Um, and so that, I, I honestly, I missed McDonald's. That's the biggest thing. I was reading um, Tim Peake's book, Astronaut Tim Peake, um, and a few other really great biographies of people that have done big expeditions or gone to space. And all of them have said McDonald's has been their favorite meal of their entire life because it was just so bad for you. Um, and so, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't adjust really like that to coming back to normality, but I did feel, um, I did feel like trying not to waste food was a big thing then um, because I got so used to, I got an extra bread roll that I was given like two weeks ago on a plane and I had it in my bag that felt like gold dust and even though it was horrible and crusty um it was this is like my little bit of extra food um and obviously I've then since been on a few planes to various places and um mostly in the western world where you pay lots of money for chocolate in duty free and you have lovely paninis in nice cafes and there was just like a complete abundance of food um and that's not what I experienced around the, the rest of the world so that was a bit of a shock yeah I can imagine just I you know I know obviously you know since you got back from from your um traveling the world and running in each country you know you made the decision to move into a van so I can imagine there's a different appreciation for just like what you have and what you can do from seeing so many different levels of poverty throughout the world. Yeah, yeah, poverty. I mean, we could talk about poverty for ages. I it did really impact me. I had a number of kind of crisis moments of conscience and feeling like, should I actually be going out and running around the world when there's so many people starving and just you know, visit because of the nature of the journey and what I was doing to raise money for the charity I did a lot of visits to cancer centers to children's hospitals to various non-profits to schools and just so much of the world is in need of, of that sort of stuff and I felt quite quite guilty a lot of the time um and, and yeah coming back to a normal normal civilization where we just take everything for granted all the time and that then translate like you said translates into living in a van um we have a water tank and we have a finite amount of water that we need to drink and wash with um and that is hard that is really hard work to use that i think it's about i think we have a 50 liter tank in the van and it's amazing how quickly that water goes. Like you wash your hands and you have to turn it off quickly. And then you think about the people all over the world that don't have access to clean water ever. Like it's not just a 50 liters once in your life, it's never. Um, and so you do start to have an appreciation for that. And things like, you know, less, we've got a decent sized fridge and a freezer in the van actually. But even with those, we still feel like we're <laughs> we're struggling um and actually we're not in the, in the grand scheme of things we have so much so many privileges that the world definitely you know we take for granted in the in the in the developed countries where and that's why again i put it in the book i mentioned it on rich roll as well we've set up our foundation the 196 foundation which is doing lots of projects around the world all completely non-profit just trying to help communities that need it and a lot of the suggestions I've had from people coming in since I've mentioned that have been related to food. Um, there's what two million 
two million under five-year-old kids uh, in the world that die every year from starvation. And that's just absurd to know that when we have so much food um, just everywhere. <laughs> so we have literally enough food to feed everybody on the planet and it's not happening. So, I mean, yeah, don't start me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure we could do like, you know, a whole series on, on that because you've seen yeah. so much. I, I, um, this is not the same thing. My, my dad's a pilot and he's traveled most of the world. Um, and he flies private. So, you know, he, he's told me a lot of stories about like different countries. You know, I'm, I am not very well traveled. Um, I've been like up and down the East coast of the U S and that's pretty much about it. Um, want to see more though, but he, you know, he's still going to these places with CEOs and very wealthy people he's flying and they're staying, you know, at Marriott's and they're yeah. still seeing a lot of this, even in like the nicest places, you know, that are very whitewashed and like Americanized. Um, yeah. so, you know, I can't imagine just being immersed in it and not, you know, obviously flying on a billionaire's dollar. Um, you know, you're doing a lot of this with, with most of your own money and your family's money. So, you know, I can only imagine what you've seen and how it's affected you. Yeah, it's, it's been, it's been very profound. And I've, I've got, so we're releasing the photo book later this year, and I've got some really lovely photos that sum up the, the kind of desperation in some people's eyes that, you know, just, just portraits. And then there was one particular child who, um, well, meant this happened hundreds of times, but one particular photo I have of a child that um, kids come up to you uh, in the street, all over Africa, Asia, everywhere in the world, really, um, not just Africa. And they don't ask for for money or they don't ask for food they actually just ask for a bottle they want a plastic bottle in order to go and fill up water because the water is so far away from where they live if they go there they don't have any way of bringing it back yeah. and that's just remarkable you know if if i said to you like find me a plastic bottle i guarantee you'd be back in like minutes like 10 seconds but like, here's a plastic bottle and for them it's just gold dust because that's how they live and so even stuff like that you're starting to you know, every time i see like a, a milk carton or a, a plastic bottle or a, a, ta a can of some sort like they are recycled and used everywhere where they you know all over the world when they really need it so um there's so much i wish the, the rest of the rest of the world and i wish i saw it earlier um that we can learn from um it's yeah it's remarkable how people get by yeah, I know. I'm like looking at three plastic bottles on my table. I'm like, man, someone else could really use these. Um, you know, we yeah. take little things for granted that you wouldn't even think of unless you've been in that situation. Yeah, yeah. I was throwing away bottles. You know, I was drinking my bottle or chucking a bit of water over my head. And I was then, uh, I was then putting, I was throwing it in a bin. Um, and and a lot of people would say to me, like the locals that I was running with, would help me out. They said, like, don't let locals see you put that over your head mm -hmm. uh, because it's waste. Um, and also, don't put the plastic bottle in the bin. Like, give it to some child. Um, and that just, yeah, again, little stuff like that will stay with me forever. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, in terms of like, you know, the 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 bigger like running the world trip, and then you did Italy. Um, you know what like you and you live in a van now i see i know you're not in a van right now but you do still live out of your van yeah. um you know how do you guys like because you said you have a small fridge and freezer and you have a specific water tank that you can fill like how do you plan your your food for some of like like your italy running a marathon every day for 100 days how do you plan around that and i know your van got broken into like you know how did that go <laughs> yeah that's not yeah no we're not i should probably address the elephant in the room we're not in the van at the moment yeah. um my, my friends of mine have given us this place in the alps for a few weeks um because they can't get here because of the pandemic so 
I feel like we are living luxury in a, in a palace versus, versus the van, but the van is just outside and we're actually saying we miss it the other day. So we're going we're, we're to be going back in, Poppy agrees with me, we're going to yeah. be going back into it in a minute, but um, in a few days. The, um, so planning food in the van, um, we, we have a freezer. We don't often use the freezer because we try and, because we can turn the, fr the freezer into a fridge. So we'll just use, use two compartments. Um, very fancy fridge and we, we use it very wisely. Most of the time we kind of stock up on as, as much of the good stuff as we can. Um, but just like anybody would go out and do a normal food shop, we just have to do it slightly more often. Um, and with there were certain things I was you know, thinking about protein drinks and shakes and stuff that we can make other things with like porridge and pasta and anything that would keep that doesn't need to be in the fridge that we knew we would have some decent calories from. Um, but the, the, we didn't get that very right in all honesty. There was so many, so many ways in which we could have done that better. Um, there was frequent occasions where we'd stock up on nice healthy stuff and then we would happen to park next to a, a restaurant or next to a pizza takeaway place and we would then end up having to like frantically eat all of the food and a week later when it was going out of date um, so um, all that sort of stuff but um, yeah no living in the living in the van in terms of food it, I think many people assume that we live in this tiny little box and we haven't got any luxuries we have solar we have heating we have a fridge we have a freezer we have a cooker we have running water we have quite a lot that most of the world doesn't have even in our little van um and so we we do cook most most meals in the van relatively easily just simple stuff we're not very good cooks but we we uh, <laughs> we, we make the food simply yeah you make you make it you make it happen and i imagine it's helpful to have everything like moving along with you like throughout your your italy run because you didn't have to like pack every time you just you know were continuing on, yeah, it was on wheels, which is nice. Yeah, that's so true, actually. Uh, you, you, we definitely take that for granted now. We have everything with us all the time. There's a few occasions where we're like, oh, should we just get a, a taxi to this place instead? And we always decide not to, because if we drive, um, and you, you may think, well, why wouldn't you drive? Well, A, because our van is quite big and you can't always park it. Um, but we're taking the van with us. The benefits are we have everything. We have literally our whole life, everything from just like our little trinkets to our chessboard to our wine glasses or whatever, and everything we we need. So um, yeah, talking about wine glasses, um, I don't drink, and so that is a that's that's something that I think did benefit me on running the world. Um, I can't have imagined doing that with the occasional hangover or with just the, the wine having a little bit of a, I say wine, because I used to love wine, um, was my, I guess that would, that would probably start to become a little bit of an issue, I think. Um, you know, free, free wine on planes is something that I should have, should have probably avoided, and I did avoid, so. I've not drank, I've not actually had beer for 12 years, and I've not had um, alcohol for four, so it's quite good. I bet that helped, I mean, I think, and too, like if you're traveling around the world, I mean, some of it's not like you don't really you don't really know what you're getting in some countries and they're like this is alcohol you know you're not sure what's in there um you know yeah. I, I think it probably helps just your body recover and 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 maintain some some form of hydration yeah uh, yeah I, I do wonder whether or not if i had had wine as opposed to water sometimes i suppose this is quite <laughs> optimistic whether i would have had more calories and more energy because obviously you've got sugar and a bit of calories in there so but maybe then i would have had some more dips in energy swings and roundabouts but either way it was nice to be disciplined with that i like to have some discipline it's like, like the same as not having mcdonald's here i don't need to do that but just good for practicing discipline i guess 
Yeah. I mean, we'll have to do two more than one without supplements and then one where all you do is drink wine <laughs> and then we'll yeah, compare. Sure. <laughs> so you can go and do it first just to test it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you said it, you said that no one had run in every country before, um, but people have gone to the moon. And, and I think maybe one of those things is easier <laughs> than the other if we did the moon <laughs> right <laughs> well, i just i discovered that yeah i discovered that every country in the world wasn't as easy as i expected um yeah. and i wasn't yeah. expecting it to be easy <laughs> it was much much harder yeah it's like all moving targets all the time um yeah. well like how you know i know you just finished your your italy trip and and i know we're running on, running short on time but how long do you typically take to like recover from something like that and what's what's coming next how do I, I, my recovery, I think is ridiculously quick. Um, from, we finished on Christmas Eve and come the new year, well, no, not even before that Christmas Eve, I would say the evening of Christmas day, I, I felt like I hadn't run for ages. Like wow. I was fine. My, I was, I was fatigued, like in my body, I was, and my mind was definitely needing to relax and calm down. I guess endorphins and adrenaline and all sorts of stuff not flowing anymore. Um, but uh, I think a lot of people would assume that running 100 marathons and then stopping and not running on 100 on day 101 would feel weird. But I actually didn't even notice that I wasn't doing it. <laughs> it was just, you know, I was just like, no, that's fine. And my body didn't hurt in any way. Um, my injury wasn't hurting me. I, I didn't have any, I didn't have any, any issues. I, I do recover quite quickly. Um, like I said, right at the beginning, I've not run properly. I'll keep running, but I've not run decent distances in my book for, for quite a while. Um, for I'd say three or four weeks. And so I'm back to training now and we're doing four trips this year, four expeditions. Um, we're going to do north to south of Italy, uh, not Italy, north to south, I've done that one, north to <laughs> south of New Zealand, north to south of Malawi, uh, circumnavigation of Iceland and the circumnavigation of Bali. Um, so we're doing those two, uh, those four, so two circumnavigations, two north to souths. Um, that's throughout the whole of the year, kind of all over the place, um, if COVID will let us. Um, we have a couple of other little mini trips. We're doing one to the Faroe Islands, um, tiny little islands, beautiful place, and one to Tibet. Um, so basically lots of running. Um, that's what I've got on the agenda. Um, and then later on in the year, we start the speaking tour back up. So talking more about the journey, going to schools and theatres, um, trying to share the journey a little bit more to in inspire a few people. Um, and then this is all kind of working towards and has been for quite some time, even running the world was, I suppose, training for it. We're working towards a big mission in 2023, which I can't tell you the details of yet. Um, but it is going to be the biggest, biggest running challenge that I have ever taken on. And I think anybody would have taken on. Um, and it's it's pretty scary. Um, so, um, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna be releasing that as soon as I'm, I'm allowed to by the sponsors. Um, and I'm just looking forward to getting stuck into that, but it's going to be a, an absolutely grueling talking about nutrition. That is, I think, if not number one, number one or number two on my most worried list. Um, so we'll have to have a conversation about that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely well i'm so interested now and i can't wait for you to release that because for you to say it's going to be grueling and longer and 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 more than anything you've ever done you must be running to like the moon or something like that so <laughs> few people have said that i wish i could work out a way to run to the moon i'll have to ask elon musk or something yeah and in that case you could just take like dried space food and you would probably be fine so it'd be, be much fine. Easier. yeah just liquid form or drips or something <laughs> 
Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Well, I mean, I'm, I was so honored to talk to you about all of this today and I want to make sure people know where to find you and also your book that you released and any other way to help your cause or contact you. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, easiest way to find out what I'm doing on a daily basis is uh, Nick Butter Run on Instagram, Nick Butter Run, um, or my website, which is just my name, nickbutter.com. Um, and my email address and my phone number is on there. And loads of people call me or email me all the time for messages, advice, coming to run with me. And that's kind of my my bag, really. I just quite like to kind of make it a, a more the merrier approach. So um, it does get pretty busy, though. Um, but anybody that wants any advice or wants to get involved in any of the, the nonprofit stuff or help out in the team or in any way, just yeah, yeah, drop us a message. And the book is on on bookshop.org on waterstones on barnes and noble soon loads of um loads of you know, stores all over the world but it's called running the world google running the world and it should pop up amazing amazing well yeah i i, I hope people go follow your story and, and try to keep up with just following your story because you don't sit <laughs> still for too long um and just to ask you the end of the podcast question which i like to ask all my guests and i'm very interested to hear your answer so essentially you're like about to cross the finish line of your last leg of your latest challenge. Like, and for you, that's not usually just a marathon. It's like hundreds of days, probably in a row of running. Um, what song is playing, or you can also say nothing at all to embody what you're feeling in that moment. Gosh, that is difficult. That's a brilliant question. Very difficult. Um, I don't often listen to music when I run. And so I listen to audiobooks often, but I think the answer is I probably will. I think it's peace and almost like an emptiness is what I'm actually feeling. Um, because especially the, the running the world finish line and Italy and especially running the world because it was so big, I was almost like an out of body experience. I was kind of looking down on the moment and my memories of that day aren't through my eyes. They're looking down on me. So I think, um, I think the answer is probably just kind of a floating silence, which maybe isn't the real answer, but that's that's kind of how it felt. Yeah, I've seen the picture of you and um, Kevin crossing the finish line of the marathon in, in Marathon. Um, and and then I've seen the other picture of you just standing with your arms up, like <laughs> looking up. And I that's what I feel too. I just feel like it's probably like your ears are covered and it's just droning silence because it's all coming to a head. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, exactly right. I think it's just, yeah, yeah, absolute kind of deafening silence. And then I think pretty much just followed by some slight giggles and laughter by me, just not believing that it was done, <laughs> you know, just complete madness. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of that and that kind of continued on into the evening and lots of speeches and conversation over dinner. So when I recall that, it's just kind of dinner, dinner chatter, silence at the finish line and, uh, and the, the hugs with Kev at the finish line was, was pretty special. Yeah, that's what I have chills, like just talking about how, how that got to happen, which is, which is very, like you said, like impressive. And I too would probably be like in disbelief giggling that it, that it yeah. happened. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, no, thank you very much for chatting today. And I, um, I would say just out of interest, it would be quite nice to, um, to catch up and talk nutrition for my big, big mission, because I am looking for some advice. And I can't promise I'm going to listen to you because I'm very bad at that. Um, but <laughs> hence the running the world. Um, but I, I am quite keen to get my nutrition a little bit better for future. So we'll have to chat offline about that.
Yeah, I would absolutely love to. And I, I, I can definitely say I've, I've helped my dad as a pilot with nutrition. I think it'd be a little bit different if he was in the depths running marathons and all of these places, but I can definitely give you some insight on, you know, what the, what the, what the best possible outcome could be. And then also probably what's more realistic. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's kind of my jam is, you know, this is like the big picture of what could be going, going well and what's recommended, but also that understanding that that's probably never going to happen, but we could still do pretty good <laughs> exactly yeah you, you know you're on the money that's exactly exactly what i mean no thank you very much Holly. absolutely well thank you so much for coming on the show and we will we will catch up later we will nick thank you so much for coming on the show i can't wait to catch up with you after you accomplish so many other cool things um because i'm sure you have a lot in store for us that i can't wait to hear about if you guys would like to listen to more episodes like this and you've been enjoying the podcast so far please do a good thing and leave me a five-star rating and review on whatever podcast hosting site you are currently using as it helps other people also find the podcast and benefit from the information and cool stories that are told on here. If you would like to learn more about working with me one-on-one for highly individualized nutrition coaching, you can visit fitcookienutrition.com or visit the link in the show notes to set up a free discovery call to learn more. Until next time, guys, happy running. (laughs) 